Hello and welcome to the Ropescast, the independent voice of the Middle East. I'm Ksenia Svetlova. And I'm Ibrahim Abu Ahmad. ROPES stands for the Regional Organization for Peace, Economics, and Security. We're working towards a post-conflict Middle East by connecting forward-thinking and Israeli-Palestinian emerging leaders with like-minded peers from across the region and promoting peaceful solution and regional integration. If you are looking for more information on ROPES, please visit our website, ropes.org. And our very special guest today is Eran Etzion, a diplomat and strategist with more than 20 years of experience in senior government positions. He was head of policy planning at Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and deputy head of the National Security Council in the Prime Minister's office. In 2014 and 2015, he was a visiting scholar at the Leonard Davis Institute for International Relations and the Truman Institute for the Advancement of Peace, both at the Hebrew University. And today he serves as a non-resident fellow at Middle East Institute. But first, before we welcome Iran, Ksenia, I would like to ask you, you know, uh, this week we've marked over 100 days of the war and we saw one protest that marked 100 days. What do you feel about it? What do you feel about that number being marked as 100? How does that make you feel? Yeah, you know, uh, Ibrahim, uh, it's a good question because uh, I feel that somehow when we mark this like round days, you know, like 100, 500, whatever, it kind of normalizes the things that should not be normal. The war, uh, the kidnapping of the hostages. Uh, if, you know, we mark today 100, uh, and then what does it mean? You know, do we forget about it in the rest of the days? Uh, and uh, also, uh, we kind of preparing ourselves that there will be also 150, and then 200, and then, God forbid, even more. How do you feel about it? You know, like on the other side, I remember I went to the protests in the evening on the 100 days and uh, the positive aspect I would say that I saw was the support to the families. I think like the families needed to feel Family that of the kidnapped, uh, of the kidnapped Israelis. Israelis. Yes. yes. And they kind of, I think, felt that they needed to feel that even 100 days later, the case is still there. There were tens of thousands of people, even in the rain. So I think for them, maybe it, it, it gives a symbol of some hope that people are still with them. Mm-hmm. But, but, I, but I totally get what you're saying on a larger scale. What does that mean for the whole country? You know, uh, normalizing yeah. numbers, like, you know, maybe that will help them. But what would that do for the rest of the Also, you know, uh, I feel that, uh, you know, first of all, I don't think that anybody was thinking on uh, 10-7 that we are going to mark 100 days uh, of uh, this horror and unbelievable situation. And what worries me the most is that the the fundamental questions about the future, what's next for Gaza, what's next for West Bank, what's what's next for Israel, uh, they remain unsolved exactly as they were also on uh, uh, 10-7 and also before that. Yeah, honestly, I feel the same way on that regard, that we don't really have clarity on where the situation is going. Where are we going? You know, uh, what's the right way to bring back the hostages? People talking about, you know, more military in order to get the hostages. And people are saying we need ceasefire in order to bring them back. So there are no clear answers to what the right thing to do. And I feel lost with the government that doesn't show, you know, clarity on and, and a real, like you're saying, strategy on what happens in Gaza and the West Bank. Also, we have no answers. I, I can imagine that people who live outside of uh, Israel, Gaza, and West Bank feel even more lost. Uh, and that's why I suggest we'll bring our guest, uh, Iran Etzion, uh, to help us out uh, to find out a little bit uh, more about, uh, you know, what is the strategy, what's going on, and what can be done differently. And without further ado, let's welcome our guest. 
Hello, Iran, and welcome to the Robescast. Uh, first of all, I have to ask, during your time in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, National Security Council, did you ever imagine that when attacked by Hamas, Israel will have a difficult time to defend itself and then all system will uh, uh, prove inadequate and uh, will uh, just be dysfunctional in a, such a miserable way? Uh, did it ever slip your mind that we can be in such a disastrous situation? No, it didn't. And I'm obviously not alone in this. I don't think anybody really foresaw such a severe and kind of improbable scenario, a black swan, if you will. And yes, I was as surprised as everybody else. And I would like to ask you then, uh, you know, um, on October 6th, we actually marked 50 years to the Yom Kippur War, the October War, as it's known in the Arab world. And, uh, you know, a lot was said and talked and written about all the failures back then and uh, the failure to see beyond the concepts that existed at the time of Israel's superiority and imagining potential scenarios that could happen and to listen really to those who were warning against potential attack. Why did it happen again? How come Israel was caught off guard again? Do you think that, uh, you know, like back then, arrogance and a feeling of uh, military superiority over the Arab, uh, the Arabs or the Arab world uh, was part of the reasons why we had this kind of a surprising attack again? Well, first, let's be fair and say that to a large extent, it's only a question of perspective. Okay, many countries, given enough time, will experience similar shocks like we did. Of the one obvious example is 9-11. You know, there's no shortage of intelligence agencies or intelligence funds or accumulated experience and expertise in the American intelligence community. And nevertheless, they were taken by surprise. Um, and, you know, who knows when it will happen to the Americans again. To us, it happened on that scale, as you say, once in 50 years. There were many other surprises, but not on that scale. Um, and, you know, it happens. Nobody is immune from this. That's kind of a general remark. Now, more specifically, yes, there were multiple concepts or conceptions that kind of blurred the minds of, of many. But again, we have to be fair and we have to, uh, even before the, uh, what will hopefully be pretty soon, the National Investigative Committee, we already know that, you know, unlike 9-11, it's not as if it was a total strategic surprise and nobody in our intelligence community actually saw it. Actually, it's quite the opposite. There were multiple warnings, so-called strategic alerts in the professional uh, jargon that were delivered to Netanyahu and the cabinet. Um, on multiple occasions since March, more or less, of this year. And he chose, in, in one uh, famous case, not to ignore it, but to react by firing the messenger, the defense minister, and in other cases, preventing the chief of general staff and the head of military intelligence from uh, warning directly face-to-face members of the Knesset, of the uh, Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee, of the Cabinet, and so on. So on the strategic level, uh, there was certainly an alert. On the more kind of operational and tactical level, who exactly will attack, when and how, and so on, 
in that respect, from what we know so far, again, there was a lot of information, and in that sense, it is pretty much like 9-11, because as you know, the investigative congressional committee after 9-11, in its report, found that, you know, all the evidence and all the pieces of information were there. It's just that nobody put them together. And there, it was exactly the same in this case. It was all there, including the detailed plan of Hamas that was in the hands of a certain intelligence unit within the military. It just didn't communicate it further and didn't attach the right importance to it and so on. And even on the day and the day before, we know now that there were other alerts from people on the ground, including those uh, female soldiers that were on the lookout. We know all that. So while it is a systemic failure, it's not as if there was, uh, you know, there was absolutely no piece of information. It, it's a it's a classic systemic failure, if you will, on kind of the operational and, and tactical level. And on the strategic level, it's mostly a failure of the uh, leadership, the political leadership, and specifically Netanyahu, that, you know, pushed on with the uh, judicial coup, despite all the strategic warnings that, that he got from the intelligence community. Uh, Iran, we are over three months now and more than 100 days after 10-7. Uh, how do you analyze what has happened so far, you know, from the day of the attack and the kidnappings uh, and uh, till this day uh, in the military field, but also in diplomacy and uh, foreign relations? Uh, it seems today that the declared goals of the war are far from being met. And we actually discussed it with Ibrahim uh, before talking to you that... Uh, you know, the, for the average person, it's very difficult to understand what is really happening, you know, what is going on, uh, because there is a lot of confusing information. Uh, there are some analysts who say that uh, the goals of this war, as, you know, mentioned by Israeli government, they are counterproductive. I mean, one negates the other. Uh, and they, they then maybe, you know, both of them will not be achieved. Uh, how do you assess the performance of what happened uh, uh, during this 100 already more than 100 days. Yeah, what our audience needs, to, I'll try to focus on what are the key issues that I believe our audience needs to know. First of all, um, there was a major issue with the definition of the war goals. It's not the first time in our history, and practically most, if not all, of our wars and um, large-scale operations. There was always a debate, a fierce debate within the cabinet and mostly amongst the, uh, or between the military echelons and the political echelons on the exact definition of the war goals. Uh, one notable uh, example is the second Lebanon war. When, uh, if you recall, we also had kidnappees, two kidnappees that by the way, the cabinet already knew were dead at, at that point in time, but nevertheless decided to go for an operation, did not even declare uh, officially that it was a war. They were under the impression that it will only be an operation. So the first goal was to uh, um, return the kidnappees. And the second was to restore deterrence, which is very vague. And obviously these two goals were not achieved and we lost the war and, you know, and, and it's just that's just an example. So in this case, what happened because of the very peculiar circumstances that we touched upon already, strategic surprise, all the history of uh, Netanyahu and the cabinet ignoring the repeated warnings and all of that. Um, what Netanyahu did was to uh, define the primary war goal in a way 
which he knew perfectly well, is either totally not achievable, or if at all, only achievable after many months, not to say years, of uh, major war operations. And that's the so-called um, um, uh, collapsing of Hamas's rule in Gaza and negating its military capabilities, um, which is not a new formulation. It's a formulation that was discussed years ago. I was privy to cabinet discussions in which uh, such a goal was discussed under different circumstances. And uh, it was always understood that this will take um, major war operations for a lot, a lot of, and a lot of time with multiple victims. And it was always um, decided against as a strategic option for those reasons. So this time Netanyahu chose to put it on the table as the major goal for reasons, you know, one might argue are reasonable, but he, um, he was remissed on two major points. One, the strategic point of the so-called strategic goal of the war. In other words, okay, let's say we achieve in collapsing the Hamas regime. What do we put instead of it? And, and what kind of a long-term um, strategic solution do we see to the Gaza problem and to the more largely speaking, uh, and it needs to be discussed in that context, the Israeli-Palestinian situation, not only Gaza, but also the West Bank, the future of the PA, the future of the Oslo Accords, and, and so on and so forth. This, of course, was completely pushed out of the discussion for reasons that we all understand. And the second, the issue of the kidnappees, Netanyahu chose to, uh, at first, uh, ignore it completely because he's smart enough to know uh, what you mentioned before, that you know, it's the, those two goals of uh, collapsing the Hamas regime and releasing the hostages do not go hand in hand but rather are in deep contradiction. So at first he chose not to deal with it at all, and then only under heavy public pressure, uh, decided to add some formulation, something like creating the conditions for the solution of the problem of the hostages. Um, so this is how we started. We, we started out on, in, in, a, in an offside situation, to use uh, football terms. So it's not a surprise that after 100 days, we are in a deeper and deeper strategic offside. And what happened in between was that we had some limited military successes in terms of you know, killing Hamas fighters, uh, denying some of the capabilities. Yes, they still have some launching capabilities, but obviously much less than they did before. Yes, we took over the northern part of Gaza almost completely, and I guess our, our uh, audience knows more or less what was achieved militarily. But we created a humanitarian disaster, which is completely um, out of control, and we have no plan to deal with it. And that's also obviously by intention, it's not a coincidence. Um, and we brought ourselves to a situation in, uh, in which instead of being fully coordinated with the Americans and with our other potential allies in Europe and in the region, first and foremost Egypt and then the UAE and potentially the Saudis, Jordanians, we're in a situation now where all of these uh, allies and, and partners, actual or potential, realize that this Israeli government is not a partner for any kind of a 
reasonable diplomatic strategic endgame in Gaza. Um, and that's a conundrum, uh, a self-made conundrum brought about by Netanyahu and his cabinet. And just the last word on Lebanon, which of course needs to be said in that context. Um, first of all, at least it is my opinion, uh, it's not only my opinion, but it's not everybody's opinion, that all of it, all of what we're witnessing, what we have witnessed since October 7th, is in strategic terms, um, um, a strategic ambush that was designed by Iran as a retaliation for everything that Israel committed against Iran in the last, let's say, decade. All the operations on Iranian soil, the operations on Syrian soil against Iranian targets, and so on and so forth, the operations against Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Uh, if you recall, all the time Israelis were kind of uh, tapping ourselves on the, on the shoulder, taking pride in all those wonderful, ingenious operations that the Mossad and other agencies uh, committed against the Iranians. We, we bragged serious that, about it there we we bragged that you know uh, the we have fully penetrated the Iranian establishment and their intelligence uh, operations and we know everything they do and we are kind of 24/7 sitting on them and we're able to essentially do whatever we want take out the uh, nuclear archives and so on and so forth and uh, we always and some at least anticipated Iranian reactions that were not forthcoming and I think October 7th is the, the Iranian reaction. Um, and uh, Hezbollah, which we know on the one hand is an Iranian proxy, but also has its own strategic and operational considerations, uh, decided probably with Iranian coordination to enter the hostilities, but on a low, relatively low level, below the full uh, war threshold. We also, it is important to note that on October 11th, the Israeli cabinet actually voted for a preventive strike against Hezbollah, which was prevented only by American pressures um, and internal uh, uh, objection by uh, Gantz and Eisenkot, according to various reports. Um, and uh, we are now in a situation in the north where again, in an unprecedented way, approximately 70,000 inhabitants of uh, the, the northern border, more or less, if I remember correctly, um, have been evacuated and are not able to return to their homes. Um, we are in constant exchange of fire with Hezbollah on a daily basis below the threshold of war, but nevertheless, it occupies our forces and it creates an untenable situation. Um, and the only kind of less than horrible way out is what uh, Amos Hochstein is trying to pull off uh, on behalf of the Biden administration um, based on 1701 and earlier efforts to uh, delineate the international border between uh, Israel and Lebanon, which, as everybody knows, is not a fully recognized international border. It's a blue line recognized by the UN and Israel, but not by Lebanon. And uh, the idea is to build on the delineation of this line um, and other elements of 1701 as a diplomatic way out of this uh, quagmire. I Karan, do hope it will... Before succeed. you continue, I have to uh, ask you a question about, you know, it's like more strategically about uh, this quagmire in which basically Israel is surrounded, not on every border, but on many borders. 
uh, either by failed states where you know terrorist organizations operate, uh, or by terrorist organizations that uh, created quasi states like Hamas did. Uh, and then you know the more like broad question is uh, whether you know uh, Israel can afford uh, you know normal relations like you know there was attempt to do something like this with Gaza, uh, economic relations to let people work in Israel and all of that. Uh, and uh, in the end of the day, you know, they just continue growing their potential, uh, military potential, and uh, they will strike when you less expect it. Uh, so then, uh, you know, there's this question of how for how long uh, can you postpone this? Uh, also, vis-a-vis Hamas, well, it happened already. Uh, and vis-a-vis Lebanon, uh, everybody knows that we are in for some, uh, you know, uh, a, a North war, a war in the North that is upcoming. Uh, so this is also a question of, for how long can you play this game of hide and seek? I agree and disagree. I, I agree on Gaza and I'll explain and I disagree on the North and I'll explain as well. First of all, when we look at Gaza, I don't need to explain this to you, but this is not a consensus opinion in Israel. Uh, people now, many Israelis and also kind of laypersons, but also unfortunately some policymakers and definitely a lot of, a lot of politicians, they look at Gaza and they only see uh, Hamas and Hamas terrorists, and you know the, the the problems that the Hamas terrorists and their supporters create. But as we understand, this is not the entirety of the problem. The problem of Gaza is not Hamas. Hamas is a problem in and of itself, obviously, and it's connected to Gaza and not only to Gaza, as we as we know very well, but. The real kind of strategic problem uh, is the Gaza problem, and the Gaza problem defined uh, as follows. 2.3 million people on 365 square kilometers uh, without um, basic movement rights, without any economic prospects, without political prospects, uh, without natural resources, including water, and uh, generally without any kind of uh, basic positive outlook for the future. That's the problem. And uh, the solution to this problem cannot be simply the annihilation of the Hamas regime or taking out its uh, military capabilities to the last rifle or uh, mortar. It, it has to be a much broader political solution. Again, you, you too obviously understand that, but, but many, unfortunately, do not. Um, and so the problem is not whether or not Israel can afford um, uh, whichever economic arrangement between itself and whoever controls Gaza. The question is, how do you, how do you create a sustainable equilibrium between Israel and Gaza? and between Israel and Gaza and the West Bank, or the entire Palestinian territories, Palestinian people, in a way that takes out not only their capabilities, but also their motivations, at least to uh, you know the most extent possible. It's complicated, it's um, you know full of risks, but that's to me the only kind of long-term uh, avenue to march in. Otherwise, uh, those who still believe it's only a question of, you know, the exercising of force and then more force and then more force, and this will solve the problem. I think, again, one of the conclusions of, uh, of October 7th, and certainly what happened since, is that it's not the right conclusion. 
Now, speaking about uh, uh, Lebanon and Hezbollah and the so-called inevitable Third Lebanon War, I totally disagree. I don't think it's inevitable. I think we have lived since 2006 in a reasonable equilibrium uh, between us and Hezbollah. Yes, they used it, to arm, used it to arm themselves, but we knew that that's what they were doing, and we were doing the same. I mean, it's not as if you know Israel did not arm itself in in those uh, uh, years that elapsed. And to say that it's an it's an inevitability that we'll go to war is to say that uh, we will be able to improve our strategic our strategic situation as a result of this war, and that this is a favorable a more favorable strategic option than let's say a diplomatic settlement. And I disagree. I think the results of the Third Lebanon War, God forbid, will be horrible, not only for Hezbollah and Lebanon, but also for Israel. And we need to do everything in our power to prevent such a war, which will be a disaster. Uh, it will bring no strategic achievements to Israel, and it might bring heavy strategic damages, much more than what we saw so far in Gaza. So um, a re the reasonable uh, prime minister and cabinet will do their utmost to prevent it and not to say that it's inevitable. And, now, and, there is, and there is a way to prevent it that is presented now by the Americans. Again, it's by no means guaranteed. It's difficult. It's complicated. But it's much, now, much less, now that you mentioned, uh, uh, less, less risky than a third Lebanon war. Yes. And as you mentioned, you know, the right prime minister, right? You, and you also talked about uh, the strategic failures of the past of uh, Netanyahu's cabinet and the important things mm -hmm. that must be done now. So I guess my question to you would be, what really could have been done differently? Let's say we have another government with another prime minister. You know, we know the political map here in Israel. And honestly, other politicians, many of them share relatively similar concept about Gaza and about the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So when we discuss either the past or the future, why do we expect to see something different out of a different government, out of a different prime minister? Because on the Arabic side of the world, people say that, you know, uh, when it comes to They're Gaza, the same. everybody yeah. has this, the foreign policy yeah. is the same. The internal might be different. So what can first we of all, it's true. expect different? First of all, it's true. They're all the same, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> There is no opposition in Israel, and, and the so-called so uh, change government, the previous government, uh, was a completely status quo government when it comes to foreign policy on all issues, the Iranian issue, uh, and obviously the Palestinian issue, in, in which for the first time this so-called change government said, you know, we're going to freeze the situation, we're not going to touch on anything that has to do with, God forbid, any kind of a political process with the Palestinians. The first time ever in the history of Israeli governments. And then this government, of course, followed suit and said, you know, nobody else has any rights in the greater Israel and forget about any kind of a peace process and blah, blah, blah. But it was legitimized by the previous government. <clears throat> so, yes, we have a real problem in terms of political representation um, in the Israeli political system. And there is a huge gap between the actual uh, positions of many Israelis and this political representation. And if you check out, for example, the platform, the official platform of Yair Lapid, Yesh Atid, who's now the head of opposition, you'll be astonished. You know, it reads like uh, peace now. 
we support the two-state solution, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so there's a huge gap between, you know, what, what they purport to represent and what they actually represent. And it's very unfortunate. Um, so you asked what could have been done differently. Or what um, can be in the future. Yep. A lot could have been done differently. And I'll tell you a little story if we have time. I, I was fortunate to be in the uh, National Security Council in the Prime Minister's office when Hamas uh, committed its violent coup and took over Gaza. And uh, Olmert was prime minister. And there were 24-7 kind of around the clock. It was also a strategic shock, kind of. Nobody foresaw it. And uh, we in the NSC had to present strategic options to the government. What do we do about this? And pretty quickly, the consensus that was formed uh, amongst the uh, both the politicians and uh, most of the uh, senior echelons of the uh, defense establishment was that we need to separate, isolate Gaza um, and kind of suffocate it um, in through various measures that are now public, but, and this is critical, the whole idea was that this policy, this strategy will have two prongs. One will be against Hamas in Gaza, and the other will be pro the PA in Ramallah and the West Bank. And the whole idea was, okay, let's demonstrate to the Palestinian people, to the Arabs in the Middle East, to the Iranians, to the Americans, to everybody, that there are two possible futures for the uh, Palestinians and for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. One, a dark, bleak, negative option represented by Hamas in Gaza, and one positive, constructive, diplomatic, economic, uh, democratic, represented by the PA in Ramallah. And this was the policy that, that was uh, decided upon by Olmert. Unfortunately, Netanyahu took it and chose to uh, push on with only one side of it and change completely his attitude towards the PA. And this is how we got where we are. Okay, If an alternative government would have continued with that original policy, we might have been in a very different situation. And, and that's just one example. Yeah. And looking at the situation so what, forward. So what we, can, what we can do now, and unfortunately our, our options are not good and have narrowed significantly because of the government policy that we touched upon, the lack of definition of, of a proper uh, war aim and the disconnect with the Americans and so on. But what we have now is the so-called uh, Egyptian proposal backed by the Qataris and by the Americans and others that is actually a reasonable roadmap for getting out of this quagmire. And it, it essentially says, let's go for a series of limited deals on the hostages, freeing, let's say, 50 hostages at first, you know, first the elderly and the sick and so on. Then maybe if a number of other uh, similar smaller deals or to jump immediately to the bigger deal of essentially all for all and cessation of hostilities. And then the creation of a so-called technocratic government in Gaza without Hamas elements, uh, with PA elements and, and others. And this should all be a part of a bigger scheme that the Americans are pushing 
for the revival or the uh, reshaping, redesigning of the regional uh, Saudi deal and connecting and creating a second version, if you will, of, the, of that deal. Um, whereas the Israeli-Palestinian uh, solution is not pushed aside, but is rather put in the center. And uh, it, this is a roadmap that is being proposed to this Israeli government. And as Secretary Blinken said today in Davos, he realizes that, you know, he has a major problem with this Israeli government that will never accept this kind of a strategic avenue. And he was essentially hinting that, you know, the Israelis have some very big decisions to make. And he was not only talking about the government, he was talking about the Israeli public um, and asking, you know, essentially, what do you want your future, your future to be like? Uh, do you want to, to kind of get deeper and deeper into the Gaza mud and into, God forbid, the Third Lebanon War? Or do you want to take this off-ramp that, that we are putting in front of it? So, Iran, you know, given that uh, we are where we are today, uh, no elections are in sight, at least for now. There is no date. I disagree again, Senia. I disagree completely. You think so? <laughs> but sorry, go ahead. I no, uh, so, of course. Elections uh, are uh, I, I'm speaking. Listen, I, I'm you know I want to be positively surprised, just like everybody else. Uh -huh. But here we are today, uh, and uh, the Americans are saying that they are fed up with Netanyahu. Of course, I understand them very well. Uh, this is my personal feeling as well. And the Saudis indicate that they are ready to normalize relations with Israel if the Palestinian state will be created. Basically, going back to the Arab Peace Initiative. And of course, everybody speaks about them coming changes in the government. So that's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, how do you feel about these changes? Are they imminent? Uh, and if not, uh, where we will be in, uh, let's say, six months, one year, if this government survives somehow? Yes. First of all, I do think that there are election that elections are in sight, seriously. Uh, of course, I cannot... Uh, predict when exactly, but I think they're definitely in sight. And I think Netanyahu knows that his, his freedom to maneuver um, is uh, very limited. Of course, he's using it as much as and trying to expand it as much as he can. But 25, only 25% of Israelis, more or less since October 8, want him out. Sorry, 25% want him to, to remain in office, and 75 to 80% want him out. Half of them want him out immediately, and half of them want him out once hostilities are over. Which is a big question. What constitutes this this point in time? Some are saying, you know, it has already arrived. Now, with the shift from so-called phase two to phase three, and the releasing of tens of thousands of uh, reservists, and the realization that you know this modus operandi can probably continue for many, many months. So I think more and more people are saying, okay, enough is enough. Uh, you guys, you Netanyahu and you, uh, the 64 coalition that brought this disaster, cannot remain in office. You cannot um, take the decisions that will shape the present, the near future, and the long-term future of this country. You are tainted, and uh, and you have botched your uh, your uh, watch in uh, that your democratic watch that that the mandate that you got from uh, the uh, majority of Israelis, and you have to go. Of course, Netanyahu is clinging to power because it's not only about his uh, um, his official power and his uh, and his capacity as prime minister. It's about his uh, criminal uh, trials 
and the fact that he might very well go to jail and he's supposed to testify in two or three months. And, you know, nothing, nothing positive is on his personal horizon, let alone his legacy and, you know, everything that he, the, the huge gap between his promises to the Israelis and, and what actually was delivered and so on. So he's clinging to power. He's uh, willing to sacrifice essentially the future of the country, the hostages, and essentially everything else. Iran, but that's and, exactly, you know, what I'm uh, I'm trying to, to ask you, you know, uh, what is the I'm, mechanism? I'm what can it. bring the I'm, elections forward? I'm coming to it. So what can, what, what is against him is, first of all, 75 to 80% of Israelis. Secondly, um, most, if not all, of the uh, families and the wider families and the social circles of the victims of October 7th um, and, and the kidnappees and many of the reservists. Um, so I think a coalition, this ad hoc coalition of the victims, uh, the families of the victims, families of the kidnappees, uh, reservists and their families, uh, the millions that took to the streets before October 7th and, and know full well the connection between the attempted judicial coup and the disaster of October 7th and everything that uh, evolved after that. All of this, all of these people together with those politicians that will stand with them. We'll see about uh, Gantz, Eisenkot, and we'll see about Lapid. But as I said, there is a huge gap uh, in terms of the political representation. But the, this wide uh, popular coalition will rise. It's already rising and it will rise more significantly. And it will leave Netanyahu no choice but to uh, disperse the Knesset and call for early elections. I don't want again to predict if it will be in the first half of the 24 or the second half, but I think this is more or less uh, where we're headed. Uh, and it will be ugly. It will be violent. Uh, it might amount to a civil war, but uh, this government will not be, and this prime minister, will not be uh, spared what is coming to them as a result of their performance throughout uh, uh, 2023 and, and essentially and especially in uh, October 7th and afterwards. So, you know, these are very ominous things that you're saying. And, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, Netanyahu is trying to cling into power and to, 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 to maintain uh, his uh, office at least until November. Like that's something that's been uh, kind of hinted at in a lot of places that he's looking for the elections in the United States. Maybe yes. potentially hoping that uh, definitely that Biden won't be there anymore, but that Trump will be really? reelected. Mm -hmm. And the question is, is that even a, 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 the right strategy for him? Uh, what kind of a relationship can we even expect to uh, have between uh, Trump and Netanyahu in the future? And, and, and in general case, what kind of uh, uh, relations can we expect from Trump with Israel being such an unpredictable person? How, what can we expect to have uh, in the future with Trump? First of all, we need to say that a second Trump term will be a disaster, not only for Israel, it's a disaster for the free world, it's a disaster for the world at large. And I do hope uh, the Americans will uh, wise up and not allow this to happen. Um, it will be nothing short of a catastrophe, uh, really of the utmost um, proportions. Tent amounts to uh, 
you know, the 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 use of nuclear weapons at the end of uh, the Second World War. Um, it's really the the self detonation of the most important democracy on earth, and it will have immense immense repercussions far beyond Israel. Um, but if indeed he is elected, um, I think what 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 we can expect um, is a complete disregard for Israeli considerations, whoever is in charge, be it Netanyahu or anybody else. Um, much like we'll see complete disregard for the considerations of the European countries, uh, for NATO, and for all the kind of classic uh, American uh, partners and allies. Um, there will be um, um, zero willingness by Trump to come to the assistance of Israel um, in any way, shape, or form. Um, and he will simply expect the Israelis, like he will expect, like he will expect the U Ukrainians and others, to fend for themselves. And it's uh, the analogy is uh, that of uh, you know the movie Gladiator, where you have Caesar watching from the from the stand from the theater, and you know let them fight each other. Uh, maybe we'll provide the arms. Maybe we'll make some bets and try to make some money on who's the winner. <laughs> but 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 that's the approach, um, and he doesn't give a nothing on you know if it's Netanyahu or anybody else. If at all, he has some vengeance, some feelings of vengeance against Netanyahu, as we know, which he has already vented. But you know he can flip just like that from. Uh, hot to cold, from favorable to unfavorable, depending on the mood of the day or the hour. Um, so, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Netanyahu knows it. Um, and I and I agree with you that he is probably awaiting, or he wants to try and cling to power until November. First of all, because you know um, nothing can be worse than the current Biden administration, from his perspective. So if there is an option of a diff of a regime change in the US, you know, it might serve his purposes. And he will adapt and he will try to, you know, use every trick in the book to uh to buy favors with uh with Trump. And he's pretty good at that. So um I think it's true, but I think uh he will probably be disappointed if if indeed we get to that situation where Trump is reelected. And Netanyahu is still prime minister. Yeah, it sounds like a huge gamble. <laughs> and, it is. Uh, so you touched already, you know, the many complexities and the conflicts that are ongoing right now in the world. And uh, I would like to ask you the more kind of a global question um, of uh, world order and the changes in it. Uh, so uh, I know that you are following a lot of arenas. Uh, and uh, right now, as you can see, uh, we have the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, and uh, Russia, of course, seems counting very much on indecisiveness of the West. Iran is challenging Israel and the U.S. through its proxies. Uh, the situation around Taiwan is very tense. Uh, are we heading towards a massive change in the global world order? Or maybe we are already there. And what lies ahead uh, if that's the case uh, for Israel specifically and the Middle East? We're already there. 
there is already a very, very complicated, complex, bordering on chaotic uh, world disorder. And it's no secret. Uh, you know, all the players understand it and are acting uh, accordingly. Nothing is uh, is given anymore. Everything is up for grabs, including Taiwan, including Ukraine, including Gaza, including practically anything and everything. Uh, the Americans are no longer in control. This is not a new situation, but it's aggravating. Um, Russia, I think, is uh, kind of riding a wave of success, as peculiar as it may sound for, for us. But I think Putin believes that he might have the upper hand in Ukraine, certainly if Trump is re-elected. Yeah. Um, and he is definitely somebody who's... Uh, uh, waiting optimistically for for november and for a potential uh second trump with champagne around with and, champagne yes <laughs> and and we might see some really mind-boggling developments in this axis of uh trump and putin if indeed he is re-elected um and the chinese while they have more and more internal issues economic social and so on um, and they're not, I think, in an adventurous mood for now. <clears throat> they, in the Chinese way, are working slowly but steadily really towards cool. global prominence. And they're doing, unfortunately, a pretty good job uh, across domains, including the technological domain, um, arms and, and defense domain. Uh, you know, there are indicators that show that they are advancing more quickly than the Americans uh, anticipated. Um, and vis-a-vis -vis Israel, you see it is underreported, but uh, we, sure. we know that they have already um, implemented what could be called certain sanctions on, on Israel as a result of the war, uh, by limiting maritime traffic, by changing policies of uh, state-owned uh, Chinese companies in Haifa and Ashdod ports. Uh, and this is very serious business. And uh, the illusion that Netanyahu cultivated, that Israel can position itself like India, like Saudi, like others, kind of in between the axis of democracy and the axis of autocracy, is uh, another thing that was blown up in our faces uh, on October 7th. Uh, and I think Israel will have no choice but to uh, kind of throw itself much more deeply and much more decisively into the American, European, uh, global democratic side. And hopefully they'll still be willing to accept us. We'll see what, ha what happens in Hague and elsewhere. Uh, and certainly if this government persists, or if God forbid we have another government uh, that follows similar patterns after Netanyahu, uh, it, we will be um, in, in a incredible strategic bind if if we fail to kind of reunite with the democratic world but i have, I have to there's a huge caveat here uh, which which is called trump uh, a, a trumpian us will completely reposition itself in in that respect and it's it's even hard to kind of imagine what will it look like you know will will he say i'm pulling out of nato and what what kind of world order we'll see 
if indeed it is an, uh, a NATO minus US. Um, and, and what will he do vis-a-vis -vis North Korea? You know, maybe he'll fly again for another state visit. Who knows? <laughs> so uh, we should hope that we'll be still after November, we'll be able to kind of conveniently uh, split the world between these two axes and that Israel will kind of reposition itself, reorient itself in the right direction. But, you know, we live in, an, in a very chaotic and, and unprecedented and, and difficult to predict uh, world order, regional order, internal order in Israel. So we'll have to meet again. Yep. You're raising very challenging questions, and hopefully, at least on the positive note, we would have elections before November here in Israel, <laughs> and we have some change in this reality. Uh, thank you very much, Iran, for your insights. Uh, a, a lot of materials, a lot of things to process, and we will definitely uh, will have to meet again. Uh, right. I, uh, I, you know, I invite you to another podcast the day when elections will be set. We're putting that on our calendar. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, around April. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's your bet. I, I, I'm gonna be a big. I'm signing it already in my calendar for the whole April. <laughs> okay, okay. Shalom, Ram, and thank you. It was thank a pleasure you having you. And Rose. Bye bye. You've been listening to The Ropescast, the independent voice of the Middle East. Our very special guest today was Iran Etzion, a diplomat, a strategist, and a scholar at the Middle East Institute. We hope you enjoyed The Ropescast. Our podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and all quality podcast platforms. We are very grateful to all our listeners in the Middle East, Europe, the US, and other parts of the world. You can support our work by small donation. More details on our website, ropes.org. We also invite you to follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and threads, to find out more about our work with the emerging leaders of the Middle East. I'm Ksenia Svetlova. And I'm Ibrahim Abu Ahmed. Shalom. And salam. Salam.